Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing The Giver. The Giver was written by Lois Lowry and was published in 1993. And the film adaptation directed by Philip Noyce came out in 2014. Welcome to our episode on The Giver. Yeah, this has definitely been on our shortlist for a while. Classic YA book. Uh, I never read it actually growing up. Which is shocking. Yeah, I was never required to in any class. Uh, but the cover was very distinctive, which is kind of funny, isn't it? Like, Yeah, you saw it at the library maybe a yeah. lot. Oh, yeah. it was at every like... Um, Oh, what were those where they brought in the... The Scholastic Book Fair. The Scholastic Book Fair. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, like, that was always an option, right? Yes. And, like, something about just, like, that withered old man looking out at you is, like, very memorable. Yeah. So, in fact, the cover is actually a photograph of a painter called Carl Nelson. Really? Yes. And he um, made amazing paintings that the author was, like, really appreciative of and actually, like, eventually went blind Wow, okay. And Lois Lowry thought it was just, like, his art was super beautiful. She has, like, some of his art in her house and felt like he expressed color in a way that she had never, like, seen before and thought it was really sad that he went blind and that he lost that, but he was still able to, like, have those memory of colors. And so I think the memory aspect of the colors is why she decided to put him on the cover of the Thematically really ties in well. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, but so like I never read it, but his image on that cover, uh, has always stuck with me and I knew that the movie existed (laughs) 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 and so I knew it'd be a good one to do at some point. Yeah, I, I read, uh, Number of the Stars, which is another Lois Lowry book regarding the Holocaust in class for school. I read that one too, yeah. I think I sought out her other books after that, and I read The Giver. I actually haven't read any of her other... I actually... You know what? That's a lie. I think I read some of her Anastasia Krupnik books. Um, What is is that? It's just about, like, a girl's life. Oh, okay. Yeah, a young girl and, like, kind of growing up. That sounds more like a detective. Yeah. (laughs) Like Hercule Poirot or something. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I read this when I was younger, and obviously this is such a really important and well-regarded book. It won the Newbery Award at the time, which, if you know children's literature, um, for picture books, they have the Caldecott, and then for chapter books, they have the Newbery, and it's the highest award that you can win for children's literature. So, um, you know, really great achievement by Lois Lowry. And I honestly, like, the more years that have passed, I think have just solidified its status as a classic of children's literature. Yeah, it's never really gone away at all. Yeah. Even with, like, young adult being, like, even more of a, a genre at this point, especially dystopian young adult. Like, that was a huge... Yeah, I would uh, categorize this more as middle grade, but I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, no, it, it's um, it's not to the same degree, or it's not the same type of book as, like, what we're more familiar with now, like The Hunger Games and those kinds of books. But, like, I think it paved the way a little bit for, sure. for that, so... yeah. Uh, Let's jump into the story of the book and the movie. Uh, The movie begins us with, like, some title cards, right? (laughs) Yeah. We get title cards that say, and you, thankfully, had time to, like, write down the entire thing. It says, uh, from the ashes of the ruin, the communities were built. Uh, All memories of the past were erased. (laughs) 
Then we get a voiceover, (laughs) which kind of immediately begins to reiterate the same thing. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. And it's told from like a future perspective of Jonas. And he's just kind of being like, yeah, I used to live in this place. My name's Jonas. Just Jonas, though. We didn't have last names where I came from. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I bet you're wondering how I got here. (laughs) It really feels like... When someone's trying to tell a complicated story and they're not sure what information to load up front and they're like, I didn't have, well, maybe that's not important. Anyway, no. Okay. Forget that. So. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lot of kind of exposition at the beginning, yet not enough exposition in other ways. And it's interesting to contrast this with the book because the book opens with Jonas as well. Um, and we're just in his perspective and he's just living his life. I really appreciate how the book does not give us like an intro of like, oh, the old world had crumbled and the new world is <laughs> here. You know, it's just like, this is Jonas. This is where he lives. This is his life. How is it different from our life? Well, yeah, if you would, if you were to interview someone who lives in another country, right, and they're just kind of describing their day to day life. They wouldn't like up, they wouldn't uh, front load all of the stuff that would be weird to you, right? Yeah. They would just be like, yeah, I did this and then I did this and then I went here and then you're like, wait, what? Yeah. You know, and then like little details, little details start to like add up, right? Where at first it seems like, oh, he's riding his bike around town with his friends and like, okay, maybe they say some weird things, but like, whatever. And then you're like, okay, but what about their families? And it just kind of builds slowly. Yeah. And I think the author does a really good job of immersing us in this world where we are told about this community. It's called the community, right? And this is where Jonas lives with his parents and sister. And we hear a lot about family units. And eventually it's explained to us that, you know, when you get to a certain age, you can apply for a spouse and they'll assign one to you. And then when you decide that you want to have a child, you can apply for a child and the the committee or the elders will um, assign that to you. And you can only have two children, one girl and one boy. And it's always that. And those are the rules. And so little by little, we're figuring out like how Jonas's family unit works, right? We know that he is not the biological child of his parents. Um, And we also know that his parents have like different jobs in the community and that Jonas and his little sister, Lily, kind of exist in these set uh, grooves, I guess. Yeah. Something I really liked, especially when reading about it in the book, is that the dad is a nurturer. So he takes care of like the young children uh, before they're assigned to a family. So like... Uh, kind of a combination of like a nurse and kind of like a daycare yeah. type person, which is like kind of a interesting subversion that like the father figure has this very like warm, nurturing type job. And the mother works for like the Justice Department. Mm-hmm. And so I like that. And then I also like the fact that in the book, especially like these characters, despite living in this really structured, rigid society, still have um, kind of a humanity to them and a likability. And honestly, a lot of that comes from the rules that they break and the way that they break them. Mm -hmm. Because there's definitely rules that are like big rules that like everyone adheres to. And then like little ones, right? (laughs) Yeah. Like you're not allowed to ride a bike until you turn a certain age. But all the kids the year before they turn that age are all riding their uh, 
a sibling's bikes to get used to it, right? And it's like a rule everyone is fine with. Yeah. And you find out that the dad uh, who's taking care of one of the children, they're not given names until they're assigned to a family. But the dad looked up what this kid's name is and he like calls him that name. Yeah. And the kids are like, his children are like, oh, dad, like you broke the rules. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> well, I don't think it's that big of a deal. And I think that does a good job of like, they live in this really authoritarian society, but they're still humanized within it. Yeah. And there's humor and there's fun. I mean, they talk about like having dinner together and they share their feelings and they talk about their days, right? And things that they enjoy. They talk about their dreams in the morning. It does feel like in a lot of ways, this is a happy environment, right? For Jonas, his sister, and for his parents. They all seem to be in harmony. They all seem content, right? So there's a lot to, I think, appreciate in this world. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it feels like really healthy at the beginning. Yeah. Like they're very open about like their feelings and like the things that they're worried about. I mean, there's also like an issue with not being able to like lie and having to tell the truth at all times. But you can see the good aspects of it, too, at the beginning. Yeah. And then we're introduced to this idea of job training. So Jonas is 11, but he's going to be 12 soon. And when he's 12, he'll be assigned to train for his future career. So the, the the elders kind of watch the children as they grow up. They see where their strengths and interests lie, and they eventually assign them to do a job eventually. And when they're 12, they can begin training for that job, which seems really young, but it's really kind of interesting that they're... I think it shows the priority of this community and this society where everybody has a function and a purpose and like a task to accomplish. And that is prioritized more than anything else. And the sooner you figure that out, like the better, right? Like yeah. they can apply for a different position if they're like really unhappy. But they say the the elders take a lot of time and care or the observers or whoever to place them correctly. And once again, this is like the weighing of the good and the bad. Like at one hand, they have a lot of people dedicated to figuring out like what you would be best suited to, right? Like most children do not get that kind of attention, no. right? You get like one school counselor that's who does to, nothing. Who does nothing. <laughs> There's never been a school counselor that's done anything. <laughs> okay, that's probably not true, but uh and like yeah, you're kind of left to your own devices to figure out what you want to do. So like yeah, there's a lot of resources going to trying to figure out the best path for these children, right? But also, you're being told what you have to do. Yeah, and like, you know, children are assigned to you. Spouses are assigned to you. Everything, it, there's no real choice. It's just uh, what you're assigned. Jonas is feeling a little bit anxious about this because he doesn't know what career he will be assigned. And him and his other friends are all like feeling the same way where they're excited about their future and new responsibility, but they're nervous about what's to come. Um, we talked a little bit about like the rules, right? But there's a lot of like behaviors and codes of conduct almost that the society observes. One is not lying. Another is precision of language. Yeah, which I found so interesting. really interesting. The idea that like your language should be very precise and accurate and words that are too abstract are kind of like weaned out of the vocabulary, right? Yeah, I think this leans into the very like black and white thinking of this community. Yeah. Right? It's very like this is the way we do it and everything else is not allowed. Yes. And like you can't be vague with how you speak because their their intentions and their purpose is so clear, right? 
Um, and then there's also kind of these other codes that are more just like, not rules, but just sort of like <laughs> guidelines. <laughs> uh, more just like it's it's socially unacceptable. Yeah. To ask questions that are too personal. There's like a general rule against rudeness and like being curious as well yeah yeah kind of discouraging people from asking too much or wanting to know too many things um i'm trying to think if there's anything else that's really that really stands out for the rules none that come to mind uh it's mostly just uh politeness civility but also and like not being a rabble rouser. <laughs> yeah, don't do anything out of line. And also, they're always being observed. Like, there's speakers that are giving them instructions. No, they're being watched. No doors are ever locked. Yeah. Which is really interesting. Yeah. There's also the issue of being released. Mm-hmm. Or I shouldn't say issue. The celebration of being released, Adina. Yes. You are you're you go to elsewhere, right? <laughs> which is capital E, elsewhere. Yes. Um, yeah. And... They have the ceremony of uh, the old when they are released, where they talk about their life and they celebrate their accomplishments, and then they go off to elsewhere, and it's very happy and beautiful. And also, sometimes if you break the rules three times, uh, you're also sent to elsewhere. <laughs> and then if twins are born, uh, the one that weighs less is sent to elsewhere. So, like, very specific circumstances where people are sent to elsewhere. And, like, people make jokes sometimes, but it's also, like, oh, I'm going to send you to elsewhere. But like, then they get reprimanded if they kind of use it in a joking way. Yeah. And it's kind of this idea, like, Jonas talks about what could elsewhere be? Is it another community? Are there, like, because they know there are other communities. What, this is the thing I wanted to bring up is that the book is very clear there are other communities surrounding them that they sometimes, like, visit, right, when they're children, or, like, they probably have some kind of trade with them. Uh, And the movie, at the very beginning, in the title cards, mentions that's when the communities were made. Multiple. Multiple. But, like, where are the other ones? Because in the movie, their community is on this, like, plateau, (laughs) and there's, like, nothing else around it. So, like... An isolated landmass. Are those multiple communities within the plateau, maybe? That's or a good question. are there other ones? I get the feeling that there's nothing else outside of the plateau that they are aware of or that they go to. That's what it feels like in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. But, like, the title cards almost seem to contradict that, so I'm very curious about yeah, that. Yeah, I agree. It's very confusing. Um, and then, of course, we mentioned the ceremonies that they have every year to celebrate the milestones of the children from that year and things like getting assigned to a family and then uh, you get your bike when you're a certain age and then you're obviously assigned to train for your profession when you're 12. So a lot of things like that and obviously that ceremony is coming up. Yeah, and there's like little things like, oh, when you go from the ages of seven to eight, then you get pockets on your clothes because you now have the responsibility of carrying your little items with you. <laughs> kind of really silly little but things. But so specific. Oh, there's one that's a haircut mentioned in the oh, book. Yeah. All the kids get a haircut on stage. <laughs> Just seems absolutely crazy. Deranged. <laughs> uh, Jonas has a couple of friends. There is Fiona who is just a a nice gal. A nice young a woman. A nice girl. She likes volunteering with the old in the book, and in the movie, she likes volunteering with the new children, the infants. Oh, yeah. In the book, the volunteers who are, like, 11 years old bathe the elderly, <laughs> which 
which seemed a little weird to me. Yeah. But it's, yeah, that's something that they they have to do. I mean, I think it fits with the theme of, like, uh, human touch and connection. Yeah. So it's not, like, without theme, but still a little odd (laughs) to assign a child that duty. Yeah. Uh, But then there's uh, Asher, who (laughs) is the class clown in the only way that you can be in this world by just being a natural fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> like he just gets his words mixed up and kind of like m- makes mistakes constantly that other kids find funny. He has a lot of energy. He's very like enthusiastic, right? And he's still staying in line of the society, but he kind of is pushing the boundaries accidentally just from yeah. his personality. Yeah, not intentionally. Yeah, in the movie... It's the same, you know, characters, except everybody's aged up. Everybody's like 18 instead of 12. And then the actor who plays Jonas, uh, Brendan Thwaites, is like 25. Oh, my God. Really? (laughs) He doesn't actually look. No, he doesn't look that old. No, but I do think he doesn't even look quite 18, I don't think. No. So it's a weird. There's that. It's a weird vibe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But the movie really doesn't give us all this information, right? The movie gives us some of it, but the book really, really takes its time. It just shows us Jonas's daily life, the people that are around Jonas, his family, his friends, the things that he does, going to school, volunteering, like exploring his community, right? And we have so much time to be like, oh, that's weird. Oh, that's weird. Oh, that's weird or different. And like literally in my book, at least, it's 90 pages of all of this before he actually goes to the giver. Yeah, I mean, the book really revels in keeping things kind of hidden from you or slowly parsing out information or letting you figure it out slowly. The movie feels, I think, has like an insecurity about it where it wants to explain everything to you right at the top. But also it can't explain enough either. So you're left in this weird position where things don't seem to add up or you're confused about things and it doesn't seem intentional, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, the movie just kind of shows us some things here and there. We have the voiceover, like, explaining some of it. And then, you know, we have, like, throughout the movie, certain things are are explained to us. But yeah, it just feels like the movie is very anxious to, like, get the plot moving. Yes, yeah. Speaking of plot, uh, the ceremony comes around. It's time. It's time. And (laughs) it begins with a hologram of the chief elder played by Meryl Streep. Yes. And I laughed because I was like, oh, my God, did Meryl Streep Skype in this performance? (laughs) Here's the thing, Adina. She basically did. Really? She was overseas for a lot of the making of this movie, making Into the Woods. Oh, my God. And so they literally filmed her on a green screen for, I'm guessing, a lot of these hologram scenes. Oh, my God. Which makes sense because at the opening of the ceremony, when she appears as a hologram, she's like, oh, please forgive me that I cannot be with you today, right? Yeah. And there's no explanation for it. (laughs) And it's like, why wouldn't she be? Yeah. She's Uh, like, I'm at other communities. I'm at other movie sets making other films. (laughs) I can't be there right now. This was a paycheck. Absolutely. This was a paycheck, Meryl, okay? Like, she she got her money. Here's the thing, though. I don't even know how true that is. So the budget for this movie, I usually don't look this up or talk about it, but another podcast that I listen to about movies 
always mentions the budget, and I've been finding it more and more interesting. The budget for this movie is an estimated $25 million, Wow. Which is really low. That's tiny. Compared to, like, even the first Hunger Games was, I think, like... 80, 75? Yeah, 75 yeah. or $80 million, which, like... Even that felt a little bit more indie at points, right? Yeah. This movie's budget was minuscule, which is, like, really interesting. Yeah. And I don't totally know what to attribute it to. Mm-hmm. But that's also why I'm like, was this even a paycheck for Meryl? <laughs> I don't, we don't know Meryl's true motivations, <laughs> we and we know. may never know. <laughs> We're just going to call her Meryl throughout this episode, yes. because literally, her name is only Chief Elder, even on like IMDb, she's credited as Chief Elder. So yeah, yeah. she doesn't have another name and we're not going to call her that. No, we're going to call her Meryl. Yeah. So Meryl shows up as a hologram <laughs> and they begin the ceremony and they're graduating the children like from one stage to the next. And then it's Jonas's turn, right? Mm-hmm. And so he sits there among all of his peers and they're getting named one by one given assignments. In the book, Asher is basically made a gym teacher which is <laughs> assistant like assistant director of recreation recreation something like that but like a, a, i think a pretty good role for him i like yeah. that in the movie he is <laughs> he's made a drone pilot drone pilot <laughs> which is only funny contrasted with the book yeah because <laughs> he's kind of established as the same character at the beginning but is a drone pilot. A drone pilot. A, a gym teacher. It's important. Uh, Fiona gets assigned in the book to help in the House of the Old, and in the movie, she's a nurturer to take care of the new children. Yeah. Jonas, I, I, before we get to Jonas, though, I just want to read a part of the book. And I think the book is super smart because so far, there haven't been very many things that are necessarily like bad about this society, right? Things that are different for sure, but nothing that's been like alarming. Yeah. And then we get this part at the ceremony that I'm going to read. So Asher is being awarded his position in the book. And the chief elder for each person that comes up talks about their strengths and accomplishments and why they're chosen for a specific profession. So they're talking about, they're like, oh, remember when Asher was a child? And they're talking about how when... They were in the classroom of the threes. This incident happened with Asher. The punishment used for small children was a regulated system of smacks with a discipline wand, a thin, flexible weapon that stung painfully when it was wielded. The child care specialists were trained very carefully in the discipline methods. A quick smack across the hands for a bit of a minor misbehavior. Three sharper smacks on the bare legs for a second offense. Poor Asher, who always talked too fast and mixed up words, even as a toddler. As a three, eager for his juice and crackers at snack time, he one day said smack instead of snack as he stood waiting in line for the morning treat. Jonas remembered it clearly. He could still see little Asher wiggling with impatience in the line. He remembered the cheerful voice call out, I want my smack. The other threes, including Jonas, had laughed nervously. Snack, they corrected. You mean snack, Asher. But the mistake had been made. And precision of language was one of the most important tasks of small children. Asher had asked for a smack. The discipline wand, in the hand of the childcare worker, whistled as it came down across Asher's hands. Asher whimpered, cringed, 
and corrected himself instantly. Snack, he whispered. But the next morning he had done it again, and again the following week. He couldn't seem to stop, though for each lapse the disciplined wand came again, escalating to a series of painful lashes that left marks on Asher's legs. Eventually, for a period of time, Asher stopped speaking altogether when he was a three. For a while, the chief elder said, relating the story, we had a silent Asher, but he learned. She turned to him with a smile. When he began to talk again, it was with greater precision. And now his lapses are very few. His corrections and apologies are very prompt, and his good humor is unfailing. The audience murmured in agreement. Asher's cheerful disposition was well known throughout the community. It's, I, it's so sad. I just wanted to read that part because I think this is like maybe the biggest hint we have in the book so far of what's to come. Yeah. And it's so smartly done and so unsettling to read. And I think like when you're a kid, you read it and obviously it's awful, right? But even when you're as an adult, maybe it hits you harder. Yeah. Right? Imagining just a three-year-old child being hit for something they don't understand, and that he would stop speaking. I know. Because of this trauma. Well, and it's so telling, too, that he still makes mistakes pretty frequently. And I feel like her saying in the speech, like, oh, and now he's, like, way better, and he apologizes really well. And it's like, I don't think he is probably, like, I think he's probably at the same level level he would have been with just, like, verbal corrections, right? Yeah. And instead, you were just whipping a child until they stopped until speaking. Until they had marks on their legs. It's, like, so disturbing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was... And the fact that that story is, like, told to an auditorium and kind of, like, a funny anecdote is, like, really unsettling. It's really a good example of this community and, like, what is acceptable and what isn't. Yes. You know? Yeah. Like, using incorrect language, imprecise language, is not acceptable, but, like, whipping a child, a three-year-old child, till they have marks is acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so everyone at this point is assigned a role, except for Jonas, who is still sitting there by himself because he got skipped over. Yeah. Then Meryl is like, <laughs> all right, I know I caused a lot of distress by skipping over Jonas, but that's because we have a very special assignment for him. Uh, he wasn't given an assignment, but he was chosen for one of our most honorable roles in the community. And that is being the new receiver of memories. Mm hmm. And it's like, what the fuck is that? No one knows. Nobody nobody knows. They know it's very honorable, uh, but nobody really knows what it means. Yeah. Jonas gets a new set of rules given to him after this that say he's allowed to ask questions now, even if they're rude. Um, he can't tell anyone about his training and that he can lie now. I loved in the book the way these rules read because there's like seven right there's a lot of other ones right like yeah, he, can't he can't get pain medics medication he can't ask for release he can't ask for pain medication regard in relation to his training like blah 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 and then the very last one number seven is you may lie now and it's like oh what such a good end yeah to who about what why would he need to lie now what it's like really weird and interesting. And I got so annoyed in the movie because these rules are just given as voiceover 
while Jonas is like getting ready for the day and then going to visit the giver. And it's almost like you don't even process what he's saying. Like that was so impactful reading it in the book. Yeah. And then it's just like, also, I could lie now. But anyway, I'm already Whatever. here. Hi, giver. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was really underserving the material here. Yeah, it's very dramatic in the book. And in the book, he just goes to uh, this annex, I think, on the House of the Old, where the giver lives. In the movie, he goes to the edge of the continent. <laughs> Ian, yeah, where the clouds obscure the perilous drop to whatever is below. Yeah, it's like an old stone looking kind of house that, like you said, is built right up to the edge of the, the plateau. And in both versions, he goes in and he has to be like buzzed in, which is weird for him because like all doors are unlocked in their world. And he goes in and I love the way it's described because it's like a room filled with books. Mm -hmm. But in his world, in this community, the only books they have are like the rule book. Wasn't there another one? A dictionary? A dictionary. I'm like, it was. Precision of language. (laughs) Like, it wasn't a Bible, was it? I don't think so. Yeah, um, a dictionary. And, but like, there's like hundreds of books on these shelves, right? And he describes like, there's furniture, but it's like more ornate than what we have. Like there's carvings into it. And like, you just get the sense that it's like an old den. Yeah. A relic of the past. Yeah. And so immediately he's like, things are weird. Yeah. And technically this man is called the receiver of memory, but since Jonas is also now the receiver of memory in training, uh, he says, you can call me the giver. Yes. Which is where we get the title. Yeah. Um, so Jonas doesn't really know what his job here is or what it entails or what's going on. And the, um, the giver is kind of like, I can't really describe it to you. I can only really show you in the book. He has to take his shirt off. I don't like it. And lie face down on the bed. And the giver like places his hand on Jonas's back. Yeah, very, very strange. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't do this in the movie. Which Although, is, in the movie, he, like, pulls the chair that Jonas is sitting in, like, super close to be uncomfortable, right? Yes. And then they kind of, he grasps his, his arms, which I think makes more sense. It does. Also, I actually really liked the visuals of that scene, because they're sitting across from each other, and the giver keeps being like, get closer, move closer. And then he's, like, only a foot away, but then... Uh, the giver just reaches over and like yanks him like knee to to knee. Right. And like the camera kind of pushes. And it's one of the few moments in the movie where it felt like uh, it was doing something a little interesting. Yeah. And Jonas is clearly unsettled. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But when he touches Jonas, he gives him a memory and it's as if Jonas is experiencing it as he's given the memory. So um, it's described to us in the book and in the movie, we see the scene where Jonas is on a sled going down a hill on a snowy environment. It's very cute. Okay, this scene in the movie is where I think the age of the actor really comes through. <laughs> yeah. Because he's like on this sled. A like big man. Wee! Like he's like so <laughs> emphatic and like smiling. And I'm like, that's a, that's an adult man. <laughs> That's what that is on that sled. That's not that's not a child. No. (laughs) And I mean, I think something is a little lost, too, in translation. Right. Because for Jonas at 12 years old. Yes. In the book, experiencing this. This is one thing. 
And for Jonas as an 18-year-old slash 25-year-old man, <laughs> yeah. it's a little bit different. It's a little It's wild. harder to believe. Yeah. Even though he would probably still have the same experience because he's never seen snow or anything like this before, it still feels a little silly. Yeah, I think there's just a huge mistake in casting up for this movie. Yeah. So Jonas is like, what the fuck was that? What and it's interesting because like by experiencing these memories, memories he's also given the words to describe these things that he doesn't understand. Like the words snow and sled kind of come to him in his mind, right? And the giver explains like that was a memory that lived in me, and I've passed it on to you now. I don't have it anymore, but it is in you. Mm-hmm. And essentially, this whole thing is about me giving you all of these memories, this database of memories in my head. And transferring it to you. You're basically a living uh, server. Yeah, Yeah, that's a good uh, explanation for it. And we come to realize that in these communities, uh, memories of the past have been completely removed from the people that exist here, right? But one person needs to still remember them. And that's the receiver of memory. And this receiver of memory is needed because in certain situations where the community elders might not know what to do, how to handle a problem that arises or, you know, just how to move forward with their society or or considering changing the rules, right? They consult with the receiver of memory and they say, look back on your memories of the world before, look back on the mistakes that were made in the past and advise us, right? Um, It's very weird though, because it's very much like, All these people don't have to live with the sorrows and the grief of the past, except one person does. Yeah. And I like that. I think the elders in the book know what the receiver has, right? Like access to these old memories, but they don't really understand what the memories contain. No. The lessons or the knowledge or the wisdom that's within them. But, like, they understand there's kind of this boundary that they're aware of and they're fine with. But they'll be like, you tell us if this is, like, a good or bad thing or, like, what we should do here. Yeah. Don't tell us about the memories. No. Just give us your advice based on your memories. Yeah. So it's kind of like one person burdened with all this information and knowledge and they just kind of keep passing it on generation to generation. We're also explained the idea of sameness and how... Uh, The communities have all been engineered to be the same. People all kind of look the same. Um, The terrain has been leveled, so there's no hills. Yeah. Yeah. Because after the sled memory, he's like, what's a hill? (laughs) Like, you should have some idea of incline, (laughs) right? Like, is there no No. ramps or, like, stairs where you live? (laughs) Yeah, and like also that people have to be the same and act the same and do the same things. Um, And then we're also told that color doesn't exist in this world either, which I think is one limitation of the book format here because we're told that they live in black and white, but that's really hard to envision. And I think the movie can do that a little bit better. Okay, so I have... I have a counter to that. I almost feel the opposite. Really? So I think it's so interesting in the book. He talks about like, oh, seeing this apple. And for a moment, there was something weird about it. Like some quality that you can't (laughs) describe, right? And then his friend's hair had the same quality or faces. And he like doesn't know what's happening. And he can't, he doesn't have the vocabulary, right? To describe it. And then the giver is like, oh, you're seeing the color red. And you're (laughs) like, what? Yeah. Like you don't even... 
realize right up until that point that they don't see color and i think that's such an sneaks up on you yeah that's such an interesting revelation to have and and an understanding of like what's going on with him and i actually think there's an issue with the way the film does it because i think what the book does well is that yeah the community's weird at the beginning right but it's also kind of idyllic like yeah there's a lot of good things about it everyone seems like quote-unquote happy and things seem to run really efficiently and well right like everyone seems really well provided for things like that right then the layers start getting peeled back but that's it's important to be kind of at least on board with it at the start in, in a way yeah but the problem with the movie in my mind is that when you're doing it in black and white it adds this level of alienation and weirdness and it makes it even harder to connect yeah. with the characters or, like, what this world, like, why anyone would like this world, right? Like, it just makes everything feel unnatural and foreign, right? And I think that's kind of an issue because when there's the revelation of, like, oh, my God, we're not feeling things. We're not having emotions. We're not, like, we're only living half-lives. You're, like, well, fucking of course. Like, yeah, you're living in black, and, black white. and white. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I do like in the movie, as Jonas starts to experience more emo- or memories from the giver, like, the color kind of fills in slowly. It's interesting. In the movie, and I think that works well. But I, I see your point. I have a, I had an idea, Adina. Yeah. And I know this isn't cover to credit slash Ian Pitch's movie ideas. But <laughs> I, I thought about this, right? Like, what's the solution to that, to not doing the black and white thing? I have an idea. What if from the beginning the movie was in color? Like, saturated colors really add kind of a lushness to this community, like 1950s suburbia. Like, re- and, and I mean, I think the book is leaning into that vibe a lot too, right? Yeah. Kind of everything's like perfect, right? Like Stepford Wives almost. And you have the same moments where he sees like an apple and he's looking at it or like his friend's hair. And he maybe describes like something happened to it. But like you as the audience, like in the book, are like, what's he talking about? Yeah. What does he mean? There is something weird about it. Like you don't even see it. Then he's talking to the giver after his first memory and is like, yeah, there was something I was seeing with like this apple and hair and whatever. And then the giver is like, oh, you saw the color red. And then when it cuts back to Jonas... Now everything's in black and white. Mm. And moving on, things are in black and white. As he realizes what a half-life they're living and how they're not, like, actually experiencing things, now things are in black and white. Now things feel grim and foreign and alien. Mm, Interesting. And then you can maybe start layering in the colors and kind of bring it back, right? Mm -hmm. But I think doing the opposite of what the movie does, starting it off really vivid and lush, and then... To contrast and show like his view of their society, then changing it to black and white and only the memories are color. Mm-hmm. That's my pitch, Adina. <laughs> <laughs> I think that could have been like really interesting and effective. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. And I do think color is used in kind of unique ways in this movie. Yeah. That I can appreciate. But yeah, it's a little bit different than in the book. And I think obviously it has to be, right? Yeah, I mean, like by nature, a movie has to give you so much more visual information than a book does. A book can just tell you whatever the fuck it wants to and give you whatever details it wants to give you. And you can slowly figure out, oh, this place is weird. But the movie kind of has to right out of the gate be like, 
yeah, like it's creepy. Everyone's just riding around on bikes <laughs> and like slapping their legs to clap. And yeah, like, and the community's kind of futuristic, but also like boring. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So that's like he's getting memories from the giver, right? He's having all these experiences from the past that are all like pretty good. But he knows there might be pain to come because he's been told that part of his training will include pain. And then at home, they get a new child to come into their family, which is not someone who's going to be there permanently. There's a child that his father is taking care of at the new children's center who is having a hard time adjusting. And basically, they require all of these kids to kind of be able to sleep on their own and be fine before they send them to to families and assign them. And this child, who the dad looked up the name of, which was against the rules, but he's like, I thought it wouldn't be too bad. His name is Gabriel. Um, Because usually they're not assigned a name until they go to a family. And he asked for an extension on this child because the child was not ready to go to a family at its appointed time. And so they're like, we'll give this child another year and we'll see how it goes. And so the dad is like, I'm going to bring Gabriel home to spend the nights with us. Maybe it'll make things easier. Also, if there is a child that is like definitely like a lost cause in their eyes, uh, they get released to elsewhere. To elsewhere. Yeah. It's a happy time. It is. Obviously, it's going to be fine. <laughs> Something interesting about Gabriel, though, is that he has pale eyes like Jonas, which makes sense once you realize that everything's in black and white in the book as to why they say pale eyes. That's I didn't even think about that. And not blue eyes. Mm. Um, but yeah, Jonas and Gabriel and the giver all have pale eyes. And this is one aspect of the book that I did not like because it almost implied that this ability to become a giver, to see beyond, to be able to take on these memories was only for blue-eyed people. And as a brown-eyed girl, (laughs) I object. My brown-eyed girl. (laughs) Yeah, well, the funny thing is, and maybe the explanation is, Maybe it is a genetic thing, and they were lying when they were like, oh, we observed Jonas closely, and he has all the traits that we look for in, like, a young receiver. Like, he's courageous and smart and blah, 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 but really, they're like, actually, he just has the the fucked up eyes. (laughs) That's all we look for. We haven't looked at him one second after we saw he had pale eyes. Uh, So, yeah, it kind of undermines the entire idea that Jonas is, like... Special? Yeah. Well, and also, like... When you think about the eye color, then you're brought up with, like, the whole Mm -hmm. eugenics idea, right? You're like, okay, like, does is everybody here white? Because it's implied that they are. Yes. Later on in Memories, he talks about seeing people of all different skin tones. Yes. In the past only. And so then you're like, okay, was everybody of different skin tones killed? Or was this, like, the only group of people that survived some kind of catastrophe? Or was this just a group of people that decided to create this community on their own and it was only white people? Or, like, because if it was really, like, a a smattering of all groups of humans and they, like, interbreeded over the years, everyone would look a lot more brown, is all I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, a, a valid point. I mean, like, if you have a society that is dedicated to creating sameness. It usually means white. It, yes. And it usually <laughs> means, like, genocide or ostracization or, like, some other really fucked up means of achieving that, right? I mean, it's like what white supremacy is now, right? Yeah, and I think, like, the author, by not talking about race, is actually saying some very specific things about race. So I do mm. think that this does not work well 
with like a critical, a modern critical racial lens looking if, back yeah, on Yeah, if you didn't have the blue-eyed savior thing going on, I would have been like, you know what? I kind of respect the bluntness of being like, yeah, uh, there's no black people here because like it's fucked up and we're dedicated to sameness and like uh, you could kind of fill in the blanks of like how we got to this point, right? But then you add in the blue-eyed and then yeah. you're like, okay, well, what? What does that mean? I mean, this is a trope that exists in a lot of, like, science fiction and fantasy. Like, the chosen one having, like, weird colored eyes. Yeah. And oftentimes just, like, blue eyes or something different. So, like, I don't want to be too accusational and, like... No, and, I mean, this book was written in the 90s, so... And this, you know, author is a white woman, right? She has a certain perspective. I just think, like, when we imagine dystopian societies... Nobody really thinks about black people in them or like yeah. future mm-hmm. societies. Right. And I think that's a problem. Um, and it's just something that I wanted to point out. And yeah, it's not that I am like, oh, this book is terrible because of that. It's just like something interesting to notice, I think. Yeah. I mean, like there's a lot of questions raised by how did we get to this point? And one of them that probably would have been worth explaining or exploring a little bit more is where did all the black people go? Yeah. <laughs> Probably a pretty valid thing to address if you're going to establish that. Very valid question. Uh, getting back to the movie. So Jonas and Fiona seem like they're kind of into each other. And in the book, Jonas really doesn't talk to his friends, Asher and Fiona, about his training at all because he's not supposed to. But in the movie, he's like, I have to tell people about yeah. this. <laughs> people have to know. He's trying to get... Fiona to see color, which she can't. And then he's like, ends up doing this little like dance with his sister, Lily. He's trying to teach her this memory he had of dancing, right? And music. And then there's this other scene where he and Fiona get on like, what are they like cafeteria trays and yes. like yes, sled down the steps of this crazy like Adina. What is this? What is this walkway? I don't it know. Is, it's like there's a like um like an enclosed stadium or like dome that's huge. And then they're like, you know, what would be the most efficient way <laughs> to travel past this is to walk over the, the biggest arch <laughs> stepway you could even imagine. So many fucking steps. And I would get it if it was if its purpose was like just being an observational deck. But I'm like, clearly people are just commuting on this pathway. Like they passed so many people on this like sled ride down the steps that I'm like, who is going up these steps? It's so tall. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was it's such a small thing, but like it, it drove me crazy. It was very silly. It's very absurd. I, I mean, it's just meant to be like he's trying to share like his experiences, even though it's like not really allowed. Uh, let's go to Memories of Pain, Ian. (laughs) Yeah, let's get the pain going. Uh, so in the book, he is kind of insistent. He's like, I know I will experience pain. Like the chief elder, I'm sorry, Meryl told me (laughs) I'd experience pain. Like I'm ready for it. So the first memory in the book that he gives Jonas of pain is like a sled riding incident where he like goes out of control, gets launched off the sled and like breaks his leg. Yeah. And Jonas, like, you know, comes out of it. And obviously his leg isn't broken now, but, like, he feels that pain and he experienced this extreme pain. And it's kind of, we had a whole discussion on, like, the the community world. And we were like, what's the level of, 
is modern medicine really good where it prevents a lot of things and incidents and sickness? Or is it just everything is covered in a layer of Nerf foam <laughs> and just nobody everything's ever... Everything's safe. Yeah, everything's safe and nobody gets hurt. They don't even have hills here, right? Yeah. So it's like people just don't seem to get hurt or experience any kind of severe pain. And so for Jonas, this is like kind of shocking and horrifying. It is. And he sees more memories of pain that aren't just physical pain, but are mental and emotional pain. Um, In the movie, we see a memory of an elephant being killed for its ivory tusks, which is so tragic, right? I'm like, this is like real footage, right? Like, it really feels like... I don't know, but it was upsetting. It was upsetting. Yeah. And, you know, we have memories of war. And, like, how intense for the this 12-year-old child to experience someone being killed in war, right? Yeah. It's like they're living it, you know? It's incredibly traumatic. I think the way the book, the movie gives you like a Vietnam War flashback, uh, which is like, it's okay. I actually think if they had done what the book did, it would have been maybe more effective because he's kind of in a battleground like after the battle and he's just seeing like the devastation and people like crying out in pain. I don't know if it's supposed to be the Civil War. Like, I don't know. Because they talk about like the gray uniforms and horses or maybe it was World War One. I, I don't know. But uh, people like scattered around and like dying and it just being like a really horrifying image to have to take in yeah and i think this is where the book kind of succeeds in a in a more interesting way because we literally have jonas who is only 12 13 here and he's having to take on this incredible burden right and go through this traumatic pain and he's only 12 years old right and there's this there's just such a loss of innocence and this loss of childhood. And he talks about like hanging out with his friends and it not being the same. And he sees them playing a simple like game of like bad guys versus good guys where they, they're like shooting each other. But now he understands where that game comes from yeah. and that it represents actual war. And he's seen like people die in front of him. And so there's a scene where he kind of like freaks out and his friends are like, you ruined the game. Right. And he just can't relate to them anymore. And I think this is such a great example of like what this community is doing to Jonas and like how horrible it is and sad. And also like how all of this, like nobody in the community knows about these things except him. Yeah. And I think this what makes the book so relevant is that Jonas in the book is 12 years old. And I think in the real world, that is an accurate age for when you become. And I mean, like kids in terrible situations can like become aware of this like way earlier in life. But I think 12 for most kids, like it's almost unavoidable, right? That you start to experience things in the world that are hard to explain, injustices and pain that like have no answers. And it you start to think about these things more and it's troubling. And I think a little bit of that is lost in the film just by the fact that it's like supposed to be an 18 year old. Yeah. Yeah. Some of that nuance is lost. We also hear at this time about the person who was chosen before Jonas 10 years ago to be the new receiver of memory. And that person failed in their assignment. And the giver talks to us about Rosemary and how he was giving her all the memories and he had to give her the pain, but she couldn't like, she couldn't handle it, right? It 
broke her so much and the burden was so heavy that she applied for release. Yes. And uh, the, the giver feels very sad about this, frustrated. He feels like he failed her and the community as a whole. This was alluded to earlier on because they were like, oh, the failure of like 10 years ago, right? Adina, <laughs> how did you feel watching this movie when you realized that Rosemary was played by none other than Taylor Swift? I was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> I was so glad you didn't know that going in. I had no idea. And in the movie, the giver is like playing like a hologram memory of him and Rosemary interacting from 10 years ago. And Jonas kind of walks in and sees sees this memory. And it's fucking Taylor Swift at the piano playing a song. In a bad wig. And I'm like, why is she in this movie? It's like for two minutes and then we never see her again. Nope. Um, I, I could not tell you, Adina. Like of all movies for... I heard that she was approached after a concert. <laughs> like I guess producers of the movie were like at the concert and like asked her and she didn't even know about the movie. But I Why would they ask her? I don't know, Adina. Because <laughs> the girl, Rosemary, sings at one point maybe. In, or maybe they added that later because Taylor Swift was going to play gonna her. I was going to say. I don't know. It's bizarre. Uh, it's such a odd casting choice. Yeah. And <laughs> has has Taylor Swift been in any other movies? She has been in other okay. movies. Yeah. Okay. Mostly around this time between like 2010 and 2015. Really? Any yeah. I would know? Uh, Valentine's Day. Oh, okay. The Lorax. <laughs> okay. Because she was the voice in that. Obviously, she was in Cats, but that was like 2020. Oh, my God. I forgot about Cats. <laughs> my brain tried so hard to forget about Cats, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah, just like a random few here and there. Okay. Um, also around this time, Meryl is not very happy. Adina. Meryl is sus. She's suspicious <laughs> of Jonas. Yes. She calls in the giver to kind of give him to kind of like question him and be like, uh, Jonas is running around trying to tell people about colors and shit. <laughs> He's trying to kiss girls. He's doing all kinds of crazy shit. And uh, the giver is like, ah, I mean, I tried doing some of that. Like when I was younger and learning, like you got to be patient with him. It's definitely felt like an insert scene where they were like, OK, Meryl is back in the U.S. Yeah. What, what are we going to have her <laughs> do? <laughs> <laughs> Let's at least have one other scene with her and Jeff Bridges in it. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, there's a scene where she kind of, like, zooms herself into the house and is like, oh, are you sure you're focusing, Jonas? And blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah, and I am. I mean, he, Jonas is being kind of reckless, and we mentioned the kiss, right? Because yes. Jonas talks to Fiona and is like, listen, stop getting your injections at the door. Do the apple instead. And then we can kiss more. <laughs> and she's like, you mean where you, you press your face hole to my face hole? That I don't know if I liked that. <laughs> oh, my God. This kissing thing is so funny. I mean, the romance is so hyped up in the movie, whereas there, there's no romance there in isn't. the book. In the book, Jonas begins to have stirrings, is what they call them. Yeah. Uh, wet dreams. <laughs> 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 yeah. And they're like, don't worry, take this pill and you'll never feel anything again. And he's like, okay. So he just starts taking a morning. Uh, he start, he's on the pill now. Yeah, he's on the pill. Uh, and in the, the film, they have a daily injection, which I think even his little sister takes. Yeah. It seems like this is just something you do from day one, whereas in the book, it's like, as soon as you start feeling like a little horny, <laughs> it's like you, you they go They shut on that it. right down. Yeah. 
they, yeah. they nip that in the bud immediately. <laughs> in both versions, though, as Jonas continues his training with the giver, getting these memories, he stops taking the pill or the injection for one reason or another. And in the movie, he's like trying to get Fiona to stop taking it too. And he kisses her. And this is kind of her almost having her own little awakening as well. Yeah, which I just, I feel like hers is much more accelerated. Yeah. But kind of unearned. Like she just stopped taking her injection for like one day. And she's like, I'm having feelings and I don't know what they mean. And <laughs> he's like, shut up and let me kiss you more. <laughs> and I, I I don't know. Like, I get why Jonas is having an awakening. He's having like experiences from like beyond the grave of horrifying and beautiful memories. And I don't know. She just stopped taking a pill for a day. And she's like, I don't know how I feel. <laughs> it's not quite equal. It's not very well thought out. For no. sure. And this is like, I think the key thing that is the biggest takeaway slash comparison to other YA adaptation franchises at this time. Because a couple years before this, you had the first Hunger Games movie. You had Div- the Divergent movie, the first one, come out this year. Obviously, you had Twilight. And I think it's like, oh, you have a trio of <laughs> two boys, one girl lead. Uh, you got to make it horny teens. Yeah. Like, and I think even a lot of like the set design feels like more futuristic for that reason, like the Hunger Games or the Divergent series. Like, it just felt like... And it's interesting because, like, I don't know if we would have gotten this movie at all if they didn't think they could market it that way. Well, and let's talk about that because so the book came out in 93, Mm -hmm. right? This was before the YA boom. Yes. And this book, I think, was really groundbreaking in, in its exploration of a dystopian society, right? And introducing that to children. And so in many ways, I think books like The Hunger Games and Divergent are actually inspired by this book. For sure. Right? Um, And showing that children can, like, resist in ways and that they can, like, struggle against authority. And also kind of showing, like, what's worth saving about humanity and kind of illustrating those themes. But the movie didn't come out until after The Hunger Games, and so the movie is like <laughs> doing a pa- almost like a parody. Yes. Or like a pale imitation of the Hunger Games, whereas its source material was actually the original inspiration, right? Yes. Like this movie was made too late. It or like they forgot what was like interesting or unique about that book in particular. Like this adaptation should have been like a much more emotional kind of like drama that's like not flying drones and like futuristic uh authoritarian regimes it should have felt like very normal and quiet Mm because like the book has like almost no action to it right no like even at the end it's still pretty actionless but like that's i don't want to say that's the point of the book but like that's a big part of it and it just felt like the makers of the movie were like, okay, how can we tweak this? What micro adjustments or big adjustments can we make to have this fit into this other 
group of films. Yeah. And I think they were still trying to at least stick to like the core of the original novel, but you sacrifice so much in the process yeah. of trying to mold yourself to those franchises. Well, what's interesting to note is that Jeff Bridges, who plays the giver in the movie, is a producer and actually had been trying to make The Giver for like 20 years. Yeah. So he was trying to make it probably around when it first came out, right? His daughter, I think, read it, and he originally wanted his father to play The Giver. Yeah, I read that. Um, Unfortunately, his father died because the film um just went through this process where it just wasn't going to be made. The, the studios didn't want it. You know, there's all these like versions of the script, I think, that existed before. And then eventually the film was picked up and Bridges ended up playing the role himself. But it's also worth noting that the company that made this film was uh, Weinstein Company. Yeah. Yeah. So we have Harvey Weinstein, um, which, you know what? I'm happy to blame all of this on Harvey Weinstein. I will do it. <laughs> but I think Jeff Bridges has very heavily implied that his vision of the film was very different from what eventually was made and that that difference was in the company that they sold it to. I've heard Harvey Weinstein was a terrible producer or manager as far as films went and that he would like steamroll yep. people and yep. like force changes and was just like a piece of like a piece of shit in so many ways, but even uh, in how he worked and operated his business. I can guarantee you the aging up was a studio decision. Absolutely. That sounds like a studio decision. You know, the futuristic setting was a studio decision. Like certain things, like you just know that they were like, oh, well, in order to make it like appealing to a certain audience, we have to do these things. And just ultimately really changing and corrupting the story. But I mean, to be fair, on the other hand, I don't know how well and I know we're not finished talking about it, but I just don't know how well this book would translate to a film anyway. I thought the same thing. I was like, I don't even know. Like, I kind of do think you need to, like, amp up the ending just for, like, the trajectory of a film. Like, it would be very hard not to without it being like a weird art house movie that like nobody wants to see. <laughs> yeah. And I just think it, it works in its medium. And I just don't know if it was meant to be adapted. And obviously we still have to finish discussing them, but maybe that's just something to consider as we like finish talking about the endings of these. Yeah. So in the story at this point, Jonas is having a conversation with the giver and the topic of release comes up mm -hmm. and sending people off to elsewhere because we know that when old people get too old, they're released or sometimes children get released. And the giver is like, hmm, maybe you should know more about that. <laughs> and he's like, I actually know that your father released a baby this morning. There were twins that were born. And so they were waiting to weigh them, and the, the one that weighed the least would be released. So why don't we just watch that footage? Let's just pull up the vid. So they pull up the footage, <laughs> and you see the dad, and he is weighing the children, and then is like, you know, he's, he's like being very sweet and like speaking to the ch babies, like in a very like um, silly voice, you know. And uh, they take away the fat baby and then he takes the small baby and he takes a syringe out and he injects the baby in the head, which I'm sure might actually be how they do it. I don't know. But like, it's still very disturbing. And um, yeah, he uh, he kills the baby. Yep. Puts him in a little carton, cardboard carton and throws him in the trash. And just, yep, down a chute. And 
okay, I think we both knew from the beginning <laughs> reading this book that release is it wasn't going to be it's good. It's not going to be good. <laughs> we pretty much know what's going to happen. But to find out that his dad was literally doing this like himself. Yeah. And also the book makes a point of like that the dad was like, oh, uh, we have a little ceremony when we release the baby, right? So like clearly he was lying about that. Mm-hmm. Now, the giver says he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't like really understand. understand. Like he's just been taught to do this and he's just following the, the, rules. In- the rules and the instructions and he's not really processing it. Which, I mean... Mm, I don't know how... Yeah, how dumb can you be? (laughs) (laughs) Like, what does the dad think And also, like, because Jonas asks him, like, oh, and then you, like, pack him up and send him, like, elsewhere. And the dad's like, yep. You know, so, like, there is lying involved, right? Yeah. Um, Because he lies to Jonas about exactly what the release is. But, like, what, what he personally thinks about it is never clear to us. No, no. So, Jonas is horrified because he unlike everyone else in the community now, has, like, a true understanding of death. Yeah. Of pain and suffering and, like, ultimate death, right? So he realizes, like, oh, this is what happens to the old. Yep. When they're, like, getting too old and senile, uh, lethal injection. This is what happens to people when they break the rules three times, right? To babies when they're not um, adjusting to life normally or when there's twins. And then he finds out, too, that this is what happened to Rosemary, right? And, in fact... She asked to do it herself in the book. Oh, yeah. Which, did she She know? would know. Okay. Because, like, she had the memories, right? Well, but the first, it was the first memory he had given her of, like, a child that was, like. I think she had more than that, though. A few more. Okay. I mean, he could have shown her that information because it's not a memory. It's just showing you what happens. Yeah. I mean, but I guess it's built off of the memories that you have. I don't know. But I, I guess it's implied that Rosemary was like. Trying to kill herself. Yeah. Not great. No. So. <laughs> yeah. So in the book, actually, we get kind of a, a big, big divergence here from the film where Jonas and the giver kind of are like, maybe we can change things. Yeah. Like, this giver-receiver relationship and the holding of information and keeping the community members oblivious, this has been going on for longer than either of us could imagine, but maybe we can change things. Yeah, they want to stop it, right? And Jonas is, I think, so horrified by the release and this whole idea that it, it maybe, like, breaks the giver out of his, like, apathy, you know? Yeah, I don't know how I feel about this part, actually, because theoretically, or I mean, like, as the book explains it, this is a system that has existed for hundreds of years, right? Like, back and back and back and back and back, right? That kind of iron grip of, like, a system and a structure, like, even among the giver and receiver dynamic, like... I feel like I need more of a reason why no one else has tried. Why, this. Yeah. Why no one else has done this or mm-hmm. why this is the first time that a receiver is like, we have to do something. And the giver is like, you're right. <laughs> and like nobody for hundreds of years has ever had that thought. Right. Yeah. I just don't totally buy it. Like maybe I could buy the giver convincing Jonas or Jonas like being the only one to want to do it right like maybe one of them but for them both to be like yeah let's both 
do this right and fix the system i don't know it just feels like a little bit too simplistic of a resolution i mean maybe it's usually the job of the older to like wear the younger down and the younger always resists and then the older just oppresses them but in this situation because the giver had already lost rosemary he's like more aware of what he's doing and he doesn't want that to happen with Jonas, maybe you know but simultaneously, I can't imagine Rosemary was, like, the first giver to, like, collapse under the pressure. Yeah. I don't know. Like, when you just think about how long this system has been in place, I just, the longer you establish its existence, the more justification I feel like I want for why it's changing now. There's a lot of things that are unexplained in this book. Yeah, for, for sure. sure. <laughs> <laughs> you stop. <laughs> you know, you stop. <laughs> Um, But they kind of have a plan. They want the idea is basically that if Jonas leaves the boundaries of the community and crosses over into elsewhere, that the memories will eventually like bounce back to the community. And then everybody has the memories now, which is again, <laughs> this, is the, this I, is the thing that doesn't quite make sense. No. Right? I mean, like the book doesn't explain a lot. Right. And I can accept the whole transference of memories and holding of memories thing. But now you're like, well, the memories, if you're not close enough, would go back to everybody. Yeah. But like, okay, like I'm already ignoring a lot of questions I have about how these memories work in the transference, because like, how did transferring memories start? Start? Because like, it's implied that like, they have memories from like, all of mankind right like when did that begin i don't under it's just not it's not just knowledge it's like experience yeah it's very weird and it's never explained and we no. just go along with it right so they're like you'll leave and the and the giver is going to stay back because once the people get the memories they'll be really confused and disoriented and he'll help them process it and then they can like maybe form a better community with this wisdom that they all share now and it's not just someone's burden uh, the movie doesn't really have this plan, but we do get a map that is given to us. <laughs> we get a sweet map. Which is the boundary of memory. Yes, and <laughs> it's, like, that's where they established earlier that, like, oh, if you pass this boundary that your memories would return, like, to the people at large. Yeah. In the community. So, kind of the same information. But in the book, they just kind of sit down and form this plan that Jonas is going to escape and cross the boundary. He's going to escape with the giver's help, uh, where they're going to kind of conceal him when the giver travels to another community, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and when Jonas crosses the boundary and the, mem- the memories return, then the giver will kind of help to guide the community who will be reeling from this like onslaught of information and feelings that they've never had before. Yeah. And the giver will help to guide them. Yeah, but it all goes to shit because immediately. Um, his dad, when Jonas comes back and is able to face his dad again, right, after knowing he's a murderer, uh, is like, oh, yeah, it's really sad, but, um, like, the committee voted to schedule Gabriel for release because he's he's still not adjusting, and we've given him plenty of time and excuses, and he's just not meant to uh, exist in our community anymore, and we gotta release him elsewhere. You like champ? <laughs> yeah. She's gonna release Gabriel, no big deal. Yeah. And meanwhile, like we've seen in the book and the movie that Jonas and Gabriel have been forming a relationship and Jonas has been actually giving memories to Gabriel. Because it's implied that Gabriel has the same ability to receive memories. Yeah. 
So this is like kind of formed a bond between the two. And so Jonas is, I mean, I don't think you have to have had necessarily to bond with the child to not want said child to be murdered. <laughs> yeah. But it's even more reason. And he just found out about the murders. So it's fresh. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Uh, so Jonas in both versions, when he finds out this information is like, I have to leave with Gabriel immediately tonight, tonight. Yeah. He just kind of takes off. He grabs like some food. He grabs the baby and grabs his bike and, and leaves. And we kind of get a description of him kind of like traveling through this landscape and, and going through and, and getting farther and farther away from the communities, like traveling at night and sleeping during the day, this whole thing. Um, yeah, but and, it's and, not really an escape. No, in the book, he just leaves. Yeah. He, he's like, I have to sneak out at night and, uh, oh, I hope no one catches me. But then, like, nobody does and he's fine. Yeah. Right? So it's, like, very minimal in, like, the danger factor. <laughs> yeah. This is where the movie is, like, we got to ramp things up. Yeah. So Gabriel is actually at the facility. He's not at the house anymore like he was in the book. So Jonas has to go bust him out. Mm-hmm. So he goes there. Well, first, on his way there, he runs into Asher, who's, like... Oh, what are you what doing? Are you doing? I'm, I'm a bootlicker now. Like, I fly planes and I like the rules now. And he's like, I'm basically a cop. I'm basically a cop now. <laughs> and Jonas, like, punches him and escapes, which I really wanted Asher after getting punched to just be like, what was that? Ow! <laughs> and just like freak out from like the feeling of pain that they're so not used to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he goes to the nurturing center and Fiona's there and he's like, you have to help me break uh, Gabriel out, like, come with me. She doesn't want to go with him, but she says, I'll help you get Gabriel out, and they kiss. And she's kind of like, come back for me. And so she sort of creates this diversion where he goes off and, and gets Gabriel. There's also a part where he goes back to the giver and they have like a ho- whole conversation and the giver's like, I'm going to like give you a bunch of memories right now. <laughs> I'm going to give you some sweet GoPro footage <laughs> and an image of Nelson Mandela. <laughs> this is going to sustain you through the journey that you're going to have to take. <laughs> Apparently when this movie was being made was when Nelson Mandela died. Okay. So, so in you hindsight, feel bad now for I, I do, but it was very... <laughs> Uh, may this may this memory of a historical strong black figure help you you young white man (laughs) break a baby out of baby jail (laughs) um but he puts the baby in like a pod on the bike it's very futuristic in the movie and he bikes off the cliff ian Oh, my God. When he rode off that cliff. (laughs) The funny thing is, I think the movie in one way tried really hard to set this up because there's at least two different times when he looks out the window of the giver's house and sees this like um, tree or something, this tree and this like edge of rock kind of extending towards him. Right. So they were like, okay, like, remember that? But I'm like, okay, but you can't drop a bike. (laughs) 50 feet with a baby strapped and to the front of correctly. it and just land and keep going. Yeah. You can't do that. <laughs> and, but they do it. But yeah. they do it. They do it. Uh, he's biking for his life. He bikes a fair distance and then has to ditch the bike because he runs out of batteries on the bike. And then Asher, the drone pilot, a.k.a. the narc policeman. <laughs> narc. Uh, yeah. Uh, Meryl is like, I don't think he's dead. I want you to go find him and kill him. And you're like, why are you asking this drone pilot in training to do to it? To do this mission. And she's like, 
you know him. And I'm like, what? You know which way he'll go in the <laughs> desert? Like, <laughs> okay. So, of course, uh, Asher flies the plane out and finds Jonas and with the baby. And they have this, like, s- really silly looking standoff with him and the drone. And then, he, like, Jonas is trying to talk him down. And then Asher uses a tractor beam. Asher magnets him up into the drone. Which, and and he just sticks to the underside of it. It looks so bad, Adina. Yeah. It's just, the, the, the execution of it is bad, like the CGI. And then just the way they were like, I don't know what happens when he reaches the drone. And they're like, I don't know, he just sticks to it. <laughs> There's not a claw that grabs him. There's nothing. He just kind of is glued to the underside of with it. Baby. With baby. With baby in hand. <laughs> and then Asher flies him over to a river and drops him like a hundred feet. Yeah. Into the river. And this is Asher helping him. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, apparently he was just supposed to drop him on some rocks. I don't know. Oh, God. And I, I guess maybe it was so that he could effectively lie to I don't know Ian. Meryl it's when not she, explained it's not he's like I'm helping you though and <laughs> just I just don't die yeah Jonas has to escape the river with baby with baby in hand uh, make his way through the desert he gets to some snowy mountains he's doing some mountain climbing all this is going on meanwhile the giver and Fiona have been put in prison in cube prison they're in cubes, Ian, awaiting I, trial. I kind of wish, like, in my head, I'm like, do they have prisons here? Like, how people are probably never out of line. They probably don't need them. I just had the the image of them, like, making a prison out of just, like, sticks and things that they have around. <laughs> like, we've never had to do this. <laughs> we've before. never, we don't have these around. But uh, Fiona is going to be released for her crimes. So we're all, like, gathering They're putting Fiona in like a a different cube and the dad is going to do it, even though he only takes care of the new children. We have to have the dad. That's a really good point. Like Like, it's just to have him in the room. He's not in charge broadly of releases. He's in charge of child releases. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting that Alexander Skarsgård plays the father and Katie Holmes plays the mother. (laughs) Like two uh, obviously very great actors playing these super minor roles And, you know, we have Jeff Bridges and Meryl Streep in this film. Like, the supporting adult cast is very stacked uh, for how mediocre this film is. It is. Well, I mean, this was was quite a bit before Skarsgård became popular. Yeah. I think he was still pretty not well-known at this point. Katie Holmes more than him. So, uh, yeah, so Skarsgård (laughs) is in charge of the release. Before the release happens, The Giver shows up and starts kind of getting in this argument with Meryl Streep. Yeah, they're arguing about humanity and, like, why Jonas left and, like, isn't it important for all of us to remember the past and we should do things differently? And here's the thing, Ian, it makes no sense. Meryl is arguing with the giver and saying, like, oh, like, all the war and terrible things we did, like, this is why we have this community and this is why we're doing things differently. And I'm like, you don't know these things, though. You don't have the memories. No. Yeah. It's just silly. It's just so they could have this dramatic argument about, like, humans are weak. No, we can change. Like, that's what they want. Which is, like, pointless because that, like, the giver doesn't change her mind and it's not, that isn't, like, the main point of suspense because simultaneously Jonas is trying to reach the boundary 
to like trigger the memories back to the community. Which will hopefully save Fiona from being released. Yeah. So like the whole argument is just kind of like to, in a heavy handed way, like narrate the Give themes you the message. of the film. It's not good. Uh, eventually, Jonas gets to the boundary. The memories come back. Fiona is not released. Oh, no. The colors are coming the back. The colors come the back. The wave of colors. <laughs> um, And Jonas kind of ends up at this location that's like elsewhere. And that's sort of the end of the of the film. Which, by the way, nobody is going to have a harder time adjusting to their newfound knowledge more than the father who has made a career out of killing children. Killing babies. And he's now going to have to live with the understanding that he was doing murder to babies. <laughs> I really don't. I feel very bad for this man. Yeah, it's not great. Um, This is all in the movie, though, because like we said, in the book, Jonas just kind of like fucks off in the night. He and Gabriel go on this, you know, travel adventure where they are leaving the boundaries of the community. They're going into elsewhere and he's facing tough environments. They start running out of food. They get into like this snowy area where things are really cold and things are not looking good for them. Like it's really sad. I know. The other thing I like about the book is that after Jonas leaves, the book is exclusively from his perspective. So you have no idea what's what, going on. What happens in the community from this point on. Jonas senses that he's losing his memories, that he's like forgetting them. They're like slowly slipping away. And his like impression is, oh, they're going back to the community. So like he has a sense that it's working, but you don't know how the community's handling this. You don't know what's going on with them. You just don't know. Yeah. And things are just getting worse and worse for Jonas. And he feels like that he and Gabriel aren't going to make it. They don't know where they're going. They don't know how to get there. He's just following this sense and this kind of feeling that is telling him where to go. And eventually they're on this mountain and he finds a sled. And this reminds him of the first memory of that sled that he saw that he rode down the hill. And so I'm just going to read you a little bit from the book here. And this is concluding um, the book. He settled himself on the sled and hugged Gabe close. The hill was steep, but the snow was powdery and soft. And he knew that this time there would be no ice, no fall, no pain. Inside his freezing body, his heart surged with hope. They started down. Jonas felt himself losing consciousness, and with his whole being willed himself to stay upright atop the sled, clutching Gabriel, keeping him safe. The runners sliced through the snow, and the wind whipped at his face as they sped in a straight line through an incision that seemed to lead to the final destination, the place that he had always felt was waiting, the elsewhere that held their future and their past. He forced his eyes open as they went downward, downward, sliding, and all at once he could see lights, and he recognized them now. He knew they were shining through the windows of rooms, that they were the red, blue, and yellow lights that twinkled from trees in places where families created and kept memories, where they celebrated love. Downward, downward, faster and faster. Suddenly he was aware of certainty and joy that below, ahead, they were waiting for him, and that they were waiting too for the baby. For the first time, he heard something that he knew to be music. He heard people singing. Behind him, across vast distances of space and time, from the place he had left, he thought he heard music too, but perhaps it was only an echo. That's the end. <laughs> Look, I know that you can have, I know it's like ambiguous, right? Like, 
did he find that sled and make it to civilization and survive? Or were those the last thoughts of his brain as he died of hypothermia? And it's it was really hard for me to be optimistic about this ending because it just seems like so like he talks about the sled like, oh, like, I know it's there and it is there. And then he's like, oh, I know this is leading me to where I'm going. And it's like the exact image from the memory Mm -hmm. that the the giver had uh, given to him. Right. And I'm like, yeah, Yeah, he's he's dying. He's dying. (laughs) What's interesting is that um, in the afterword of this book, uh, the author talks about people always asking her about the ending of this and that a lot of kids had different perspectives on it. And I thought the perspectives that she mentioned were really interesting. She mentioned specifically that some children believed that uh, Jonas had gone in a circle and that he had come back to his (laughs) original community. But now that they had the memories, that it was the home that he had always like. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. I love that. Because he talked about the echo. Right. Oh, yeah. And that he thought he heard music behind him, too. And it almost being like by the time he comes back, it's like it's it's like transformed. Yes. I that's genius. <laughs> that I love beautiful? that. A kid, a kid came up with that's that. That's so amazing. And it would also almost explain why there's a sled there. Like perhaps the giver, the giver did like left, it, left it for him or something. Yeah. Uh, another theory that a kid had that talked to Lois Lowry about it was um, that Jonas was literally um, like going into the past, mm. like entering the past and somehow like they had all lived in the future and he was like kind of taking this journey into the past. I mean, that would kind of give some amount of like credence to the whole barrier thing Mm -hmm. because you're like, okay, a barrier that like when he gets so far away, like the memories go back. Like, what is that? Yeah. But if it's some kind of like time thing, Mm -hmm. that's interesting. Yeah. Huh. But Lois Lowry did write sequels to this book. Um, They're from, like, other characters' perspectives, but they kind of reference Jonas and Gabriel living in, like, different villages and communities. So she kind of, like, retcons her own work, right? Yeah. In, like, giving up this ambiguous ending to write more stories in this kind of world, even though they're about different characters. I haven't read any of them, but I honestly just prefer to have this book, right? It's just so pure, and -hmm. I think the ending is so beautiful, and sad, but you can kind of interpret it in different ways if you want. It's very legitimate to be like, they're dead. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. You could say, oh, and they literally just came to a different community. Like, there was a community there for them. Or you could be more like, oh, he went in a circle and found his way back home. Or he went into the past or, like, some other theory. But there's just, like, a lot of room there, and I really like that. I do, too. And I think if you're going to make an ending that ambiguous then I think it kind of, I don't want to say it sucks, but it's like frustrating to be like, oh no, there is an answer actually. Yeah. And it's like, ah, ah, I don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, but that's uh, the end. That's yeah, the, that's, that's the end of it. That's the end of, but yeah, I guess we covered, I guess like the that's the last image of the movie too, of him seeing the house. Yeah. Yeah. Like in my head, I'm like, <laughs> how did, what, is that they, really how they the movie quote, ended? They quote the book. The okay. Ending of the book yeah, the movie. yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I guess you just don't. I guess the last thing that you see in the community is like the color washing over them, which like yeah. the color wasn't related to 
the memories specifically, was it? I thought it was more to do with like. It was because Jonas, the more memories he got, the more he. But Jonas could kind of see color before. He was starting to. He was starting to before he had any memories. So I had it more like it's that power of his ability to receive memories or see beyond more than like. But I guess if you have memories, I don't know. I don't know, Adina. <laughs> don't ask too many questions, it's, Ian. It gets really wonky at the end of the book. Yeah. And honestly, like, I like how long it takes for the book to get to the giver-receiver dynamic and, like, the realization of the memories. I kind of felt like there was more meat on the bone that Lois Lowry could have, like, explored as yeah. far as, like, the ethics of the community and, like you know, what the giver's plan was or Jonas's plan or like, I don't know. It felt like there was more um, stuff there to kind of like explore. And it almost kind of sped towards its conclusion kind of fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, given the question that we now have to ask ourselves, <laughs> which is better, I absolutely 100% have to go with the book on this. Definitely. I mean, this book is a classic for a reason and I think it does what it does really well. And yes, we have questions. And yes, it doesn't quite make sense, right? But as a whole, it's just very... It's just this really good. Yeah. It's good. It's just good at what it does. I mean, it really got me, like, thinking, I mean, about, like, the loss of innocence with children. And, I mean, even I felt a strong connection to the story as far as, like... The burden of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm someone who likes to try to be up to date on world events, current events, uh, politically and, like, with climate change and stuff. But, like, there's a big mental toll on trying to be aware of these issues, right? Like, there's kind of a sacrifice of, like, your mental well-being a little bit just to be informed and i think this book really explores that idea the burden of knowledge right and yeah the, and the weight you have to carry with that for sure um so i even like as an adult found it like super relevant and interesting yeah and i think for kids that read this in the past and i think are still reading it today it's like one of their first uh experiences with questioning like how society functions and like is it worthwhile to like change things to make things better if you have to like destroy parts of like human existence right to to achieve this happiness and safety is it worth the sacrifice right yeah and kind of grasping these concepts and it just does it in a really really good way and like the movie is not horrific and there's nothing in particular that is really bad about it it's just overall mediocre yeah something we said earlier was that it feels uninspired like it doesn't feel like anybody involved really had and this could have been because of like an overbearing studio that made a lot of changes and kind of ruined visions that people might have had for it uh but like it didn't feel like there was anything about it that felt really sincere or like any kind of really strong vision for the film it felt like Let's take this story and shove it in this young adult dystopian uh, <laughs> template. template. Yeah. And this cookie cutter template and just kind of like produce another movie out of it. Right. Which is yeah. so unfortunate because like, yeah, obviously you can kind of contort it into that style of like story. But the the book that is the foundation of this film is like really quiet and contemplative and like uh, dark 
and doesn't really have a lot of action, but is kind of like very haunting in a way. Yes. And just very mature in a way that like, I don't know. It just like something I really loved about it was how when Jonas escapes the community, he just goes through fucking hell. Like, it's not this like idyllic, oh, he escapes and it's like, farmland and loving communities and like this you know what i mean like he fucking goes through it yeah and arguably dies at the end like you can have that interpretation easily of the book yeah and i think that's really bold and interesting to like yeah establish how wrong the community is that he comes from and like so many of their problems but then to give a really harsh dose of reality at the end about what it means to not exist within a community at all. Yeah. And to be exposed to the pain and the suffering that like you kind of are seeking out as, you know, this kind of affirmation of life. Uh, It's just, it gives you a lot of things to like think and like mull over. Yeah. So I think it's going to be a book for both of us. Absolutely. It's a book. All right. Let's do lightning round. Yeah. Okay, first up for lightning around. This is such a small thing, but to me, it like kind of points to like maybe the low budget of the film. <laughs> that triangular hedge waterfall. Oh thing. yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. They go in there at least three times in this movie, right? Yeah. Okay, because by the third time, I'm like, they're using this set like <laughs> too many times, oh and my it's God. not even yeah. that interesting. It, no, it really feels like something like a micro budget <laughs> film could have done. Like, well, and also like they kiss in there, so it's almost like oh, no one can see us in here. But then they like watch the footage of it later <laughs> on CCTV. <laughs> yeah, they're all like standing around like watching them. <laughs> I was like, yeah, this isn't, I guess, really a, an actual private spot, is it? No, no. <laughs> Uh, for lightning round from the book, um, my book actually was like the 25th anniversary edition of the novel. And so there was an afterword by the author. And then they also had the author's speech when she won the Newbery Award, which is really good. If you haven't read it, um, you could probably just look it up and read it. It's an amazing speech. But in both the afterword and in the speech, she talks about kind of what inspired this book. And she talks specifically about how she, her dad was in the military. And so she moved around a ton when she was a kid. And in fact, she based the community on like a military base, basically, and that they had these homes, everything was the same, their days were super structured, because like the families literally lived on the base. Yeah. And there were schools and all this stuff. And then she also talks about how her father was stationed in Japan for many years, and that there was a base there where her and her family lived. They went to school there. All these other families that were in the military were there too. And how... They didn't live in the Japanese community. And she talks about how when she was a child, she would take her bike or she would kind of wander outside of the community and actually like wander around the streets of Japan and experience this other culture. But she never like talked to anyone because she was like afraid. Right. But just the um, the contrast between this very like orderly, same homogenous community and then this other culture kind of outside the walls and Later on in life, she asked her mom, like, why didn't we live in the community of, like, this town that we lived in? Why did we stay on this base? Why are we so separate? And her mom said, it was just more comfortable and safer for us 
to live in this mm. like American community in Japan. But I think that really like struck Lois Lowry that like her family probably for convenience sake, right? Chose yeah. this comfortable, secure, very same community over actually like immersing themselves in this culture. It's so interesting to hear that story and relate it to the book. Yeah. And you'd be like, I mean, what would our lives have been if we had actually been exposed to these yeah. other cultures, right? Yeah, and, and actually like, went to school and like met kids and formed friendships, right? Yeah, instead we might as well have never left America. It's the same experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Uh, last for lightning round, I just have like two lines from the movie that like really <laughs> made me laugh. Uh, the first one was when they uh, Jonas and the Giver are kind of taking a stroll and they're talking about like the job and the rules and... Jonas asks the giver, like, do you ever lie? And he's like, oh, yeah, mostly for my own amusement. (laughs) (laughs) I got I I really liked that bit of um, mischievousness that like Jeff Bridges kind of like brought to the character. Yeah. Like that was really good. Yeah. And then I also loved uh, the father uh, with Gabriel, the baby, and he has his comfort object, which is a stuffed animal. And he's like. This and he's holding it's a stuffed uh, elephant, and he's like, This is a mythical creature called a hippo, <laughs> <laughs> which is a really funny joke in context of the movie that they yeah. would like get the animals mixed up and not even know what's what anymore. So, I thought those are two really good lines. Very good. Uh, that's lightning round, and that's our episode. Thank you so much for listening to this. If you would like to support the podcast, you can by becoming a Patreon. Uh, Patrons get access to monthly bonus episodes and also our Discord server. And then if you would like to have us discuss a book-to-movie adaptation, uh, patrons always get first priority for uh, episode requests. So you can find all of that on Patreon. Yeah, and if you're not able to become a patron, uh, giving us a positive rating or review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts is really helpful. You can follow us on uh, Instagram and Facebook and, uh, not X. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't fuck with that anymore. We do sometimes still post there. Do we? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know you do. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Find us on X also. Um, you can find all those social media links at our website, coveredacredits.com. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We had a great time doing it. We will see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.